Today we continue our look at the book of James, and we'll be in James 1, 9 through 11. James 1, 9 through 11. So turn with me uh, there today. And what happens if you have too much stuff? What do you do with it all? Right? You take, a, take stock, look around, and you're like, we have too much stuff. What do you do? Uh, you know, there are a variety of ways to deal with it. Uh, some people take that as a sign to purge. You know, it is springtime, so spring cleaning comes to mind, right? That kind of annual uh, purging that we tend to do. Uh, we might throw it away. We might see that there's, right, garbage, trash, uh, stuff that is broken down and good for nothing, so we might just throw that away. We might find some stuff that still has some utility, just not to us anymore, and so uh, we'll donate it or sell it if we can uh, recoup something, right? Yard sales. Doesn't that sound like a fun Saturday activity? Uh, maybe not. Uh, or, right, some people choose to add additional storage space, right? So let's get a shed. Uh, let's get a, a, a Yoder cabin, right? Something like that. Uh, let's do something. Let's add in uh, additional storage space, another garage. Uh, let's build this out and fill it up. Uh, or maybe we will utilize a storage facility in town. Uh, even here in Maysville, right, I, I can think of at least four or five that are in the area. So clearly there's a need for storage spaces. Jesus gives us an interesting parable about a rich man who had a storage problem. He had a storage problem with his crops. And so I want us to, to begin there in Luke chapter 12, 16 through 21. Luke 12, 16 through 21. And he, that is Jesus, told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The rich man thought his riches were for his own use, so God showed to him that his riches are but vanity. An interesting thing about that word vanity there comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, right? That's where we see it uh, most prominently, is it's this idea of grasping smoke. Have you ever tried to reach out and grasp smoke? You can't even get a handful of it, right? It slips out. It's vanity. It's, it's worthless. And Luke's gospel actually just prior to that parable gives us the moral of the story. If we were, Luke twelve fifteen says, and he again, that is Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And yet, how many of those around us live as though life does consist in the abundance of possessions? How many of us may be guilty of the same sentiment? Life consists in the abundance of possessions, which is the sentiment of the rich man in the parable. You may not consider yourself rich, uh, but one newspaper report puts the global median individual income at $2,100 per year. Most Americans make at least that, or not, if not more, per month. So, in comparison to the rest of the world... Americans are in the top percentage of wealthy persons in the world, right? So when we take a look at that, of, of those incomes, uh, we, we are up there. We in the Western world are certainly up there. And so we need to understand what James is uh, trying to uh, teach us here and instruct us, that the priorities of this world are quickly passing away. We have to understand what that means for us. So let's turn to our passage today, and let's see what James has to say to the rich and to the poor. In verse 9 of chapter 1, the word of the Lord says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James is writing this letter to instruct believers. He wants the Christians and the scattered churches, right? These are, he's writing to Jewish Christians and, and the, the dispersion, right? The, the, the scattered churches. Uh, as they've been pushed away from Jerusalem, uh, out into the, the region of Palestine and Syria. And he wants them to know what faithfulness to God entails. He wants to ensure that they put into practice the faith that they profess. And he is probably writing the, to these churches, and they're filled with people who are impoverished. They are in poverty uh, because they've been dispersed, right? They've been displaced. And so they don't have the, uh, the, the wealth and the land that perhaps they used to. And increasingly, as they have been dispersed, the Jewish elites and the Roman rulers uh, continue to oppress them, continue to uh, uh, press upon them and try to stamp out the way of Christ. They experience economic hardship as a result. Uh, we also know that during the time of the early church, there was famine in and around Jerusalem. And so that, again, presses upon the, the economic hardships that they experience. And as these churches undergo trial, as the Christians undergo trials, what they need is wisdom. They need wisdom to be able to meet the trial. Wisdom that God will surely give them if they ask. That's what the passages prior tells us, right? One trial of life that they have to meet is poverty. And another trial is riches. 
And our passage here begins with the exaltation of the humiliated. And so that's why I want us to see, beginning in verse 9, the exaltation of the humiliated. And James says, let the lowly brother rejoice. Let the brother that is of humble circumstances glory in his exalted position. And let us first note here that James is talking to Christians, right? That's what we see. That's what we need to understand when we see that word brother here, where he is talking to Christians. So he's saying to the, the Christian, what kind of Christian is he referring to? The one that is lowly, the lowly brother, the brother of low degree. And the word lowly here is not likely to mean, it's not likely talking about their spiritual state. Right, we could look at, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, uh, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's not what James is talking about here. He's not talking about those who are um, spiritually poor, but rather those who are materially poor. And this becomes apparent, especially when we begin to look at verses 10 and 11, and we see that we really are talking about those who are not rich in faith, not rich in the spirit, but rich in this world. So, right, so the parallel here is the rich in the world and the poor in the world. And we begin with the poor in the world. So James here is talking about the Christian who is oppressed, who is of low economic means. And what should they do in the midst of the trial of such poverty? Boast. Glory. Take pride. In what? In their exaltation. In their high position. Understand that, that, that James is kind of giving us the, this contradictory image. The one who is of low position is supposed to boast in their high position. Well, how is that to be? What does that mean? What is he talking about? He's talking about salvation. Right? He's talking, he is talking about, in this case, their spiritual state. They are in an exalted position because they have been saved, right? They're a brother. They're a brother or sister in Christ. They're a Christian. So the exaltation is their salvation, which leads to their glorification, right? That's the trajectory of every Christian. Christian, this is your trajectory. If you believe in Christ, if you trust in Christ, your end is glory. Doesn't matter what it is right now. Doesn't matter if you are of low circumstance right now. The end of your life his glory. For the lowly brother, his glory is not in the riches of this world, but in the salvation that is his in Christ Jesus. The greatest boast is not in our works, but in Christ's work. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 tells us that, right? A familiar passage to us. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? Paul there to the Ephesians church that says, we have no reason to boast in our salvation because it's a gift of God. It's his work. Not our work. So we don't boast in our salvation as though we accomplished it. 
We boast in our salvation because God has accomplished it. They, we glory in the grace of God. We, we glory in the grace of God. We boast in the grace of God. We take pride in the grace of God. Right? Just as a parent may take pride in their child and say, have you heard what little Johnny has done? Right? He made it to the, to the state tournament. Have you heard about little Susie? Right? She won more than a participation trophy. Bless her heart. Uh, we didn't expect that out of her. Right? No. <laughs> Poor Susie. Uh, but, but right, we, as we take pride in, in our children, that, that's what we're talking about. We're taking, have you heard about what my God has done? Have you heard about the grace of God? We must be sure that what James is not saying here, right? What James is not saying is that the lowly brother, the poor brother, the one who is of low social status, the one who is of no economic means, is not to boast in himself. But rather, his boast is in the Lord. Indeed, Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 makes clear uh, even back in the, the days of Jeremiah, what is it that we boast in? What is it that God's people should boast in? Jeremiah nine twenty three through 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Why should the wise man not boast in his wisdom? Because wisdom fades. Didn't we sing that line this morning? Wisdom fades. The light of wisdom fades. Why should the mighty man not boast in his might? Because strength fades. There's an age where you get at where you're probably at the strongest that you're ever going to be. And then it's just all downhill. Or at the very least, the ability of your body to continue to grow strong becomes so much more difficult that it's all downhill. Why should the rich man not boast his riches? He's rich. He can say, relax, eat, drink, be merry. Right? What did Jesus say in the parable? Fool, this night your soul is required of you. It doesn't matter how rich you are. You still die. And riches fade. Riches fade. And we'll see that. We'll continue to see that in this passage, right? But our boast should be that we know the Lord. The poor and the impoverished should have the Lord as their boast. The poor Christian's hope is not in riches for this world, not in treasure in this earth, but for treasures in heaven. Do you understand and know the Lord? Do you boast in Him alone? Uh, if, if someone were to examine the boast, the things that you have taken pride in, the things that you have gloried in in this past week, what would they find about you? What has your boast been in? Here's the reality for poor and rich alike. 
The sinfulness of our flesh is such that we are quick to extol our own glories over the glories and grace of God. It comes natural to us to want to share the best thing we did this week. The ways in which we have furthered our own estate, even at the expense of the kingdom of God. And sometimes in our sinful moments, even when we are sharing about the ways in which we have worked for the kingdom of God, we are still boasting in ourselves. In the church, this sometimes looks like the over-celebration of the three B's. You know, the three B's of church boasting. Bodies, baptisms, and budgets. Go to a pastor's conference and listen in on the conversations as friends catch up, and you'll probably hear them circle around those three things. Pastors especially fall into this trap because, you know, even though we speak much about the Word of God, uh, in reality, what we're trying to do is impress people to us. Right? Rare will be the person who says, you know, I've, we've lost 10 people this year. Not to death. They just oh, didn't want to come to the church anymore. A new church opened up in town who's more faithful than we are and they went to be a part of them. Right? You don't hear those stories. That's inside the church. Outside the church, we don't have to go very far to find self-serving boasts. Take out your phone and open up your social media app of choice. What do you find there? How many posts are genuine in the ways about how that person failed that week? Have that person failed to, to be good and failed to do good? How many of them are the honest reflections of, well, I was driving on uh, into work this week and, you know, someone pulled out in front of me and I could tell you that the, that the filth that spewed out of my mouth about them was just shameful. You don't see those kind of posts on social media, right? Not very often. How many of those posts are focused on the grace and the glory of God? The lowly brother may not have much, but he has this to boast in. The work of God in him. And let me underscore this point just a bit further. Why is it we boast? Right? What is that exaltation? Why do we boast in God's grace and glory? Let's think about that a little bit more. Do you realize what it is that God has done for you in salvation if indeed you have been saved? If you are saved, what have you been saved from? Right? We use that language, but we may never think about why do we talk about being saved? You've been saved from sin. The effects of sin. The costs of sin. Sin is evil in thought and word and deed. Sin separates you from God. Let us remind ourselves of Paul's words in Romans 8. Romans 8, 5-8. through 8. For those who live according to the flesh... Set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, and indeed it cannot. 
Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul says very clearly, if you live according to the flesh, if you live in sin, if sin is the first and the best thought in your heart, in your mind, your hope, here's what you can hope in, death, punishment, judgment. Right, The mind that is set on the satisfaction of the flesh, and understand that includes the seeking of the treasures of this earth, your end is destruction. You're at war with God, right? You're hostile to God. You cannot please God. And again, what is the end of such persons? And I would just ask, is God impotent? Or is he omnipotent? Do you understand the distinction there? Is he impotent or is he omnipotent? Does he have no power or does he have all power? God is all powerful. He can he can, listen, he can and he will bring to ruin all his enemies. We sometimes get this, especially in our culture, right? We get this idea that God is some doddering old grandpa who can barely get out of the rocking chair. Right? And he's just going to say, oh, come here, little Johnny. Come here, little Susie. Let me pat you on the head. And that be, that, that's what we're going to do. No, God is a fierce warrior king christ jesus is a fierce warrior king as he as we see that in the book of revelation his tongue is as a sword coming out of his mouth he's on a horse that is fit for war and what is he going to do put to ruin all his enemies subjugate all his enemies do away with every hostile force you sinner stand before a holy god who at the execution of his will will cast you forever into the burning pit of hell you have no works to offer you can make no atonement for your own self you cannot appease the holy god of all creation why because just what paul says in romans 8 Your mind is set on the things of the flesh. And unless God intercedes, unless God intervenes, your hope is death. But Christ, Colossians 2, 13 through 14, Colossians 2, 13 through 14, Christ does this work in you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together in him, with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is the work of Christ. Christ Jesus' work on the cross was forgiving of the debt of sin you owe. He bore the wrath of God for his people's sins. He made atonement. And after making such a sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. So do you have reason to boast in Christ, Christian? More than you can even really realize this side of heaven. It matters little if you have the things of this world. If you have Christ, 
You have more than this world can offer. And let me say that this is not a tritism. This is not to bolster and subdue the poor. Right? That, that's, not, that's not what Christ's work is. To silence the poor person. Now Christ's work is to give the poor person uh, more than they will ever have in this world. This is the reality for the Christian. You are a royal heir of a kingdom with far more wealth and glory and greatness than even these United States of America. You think the USA is something worthy of glory? It pales in comparison to the kingdom of God. So we see the exaltation of the humiliated is in their salvation. And let us see next the humiliation of the exalted. The humiliation of the exalted in verses 10 and 11. James says, and the rich in his humiliation. So let us pick back up, right? So were we talking about boasting? Right, the lowly brother boasts in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And these rich are the ones who are well-to-do in this world. They are the ones who in this life have much to show for themselves. They, they have a, a lot of land and livestock and uh, all these uh, comforts of life. And let me reiterate again here that we in America are very rich in comparison to a great majority of the world. So let us pay extra attention to these words here of James. But one of the interpretive questions that we have to deal with first is, are these rich believers or unbelievers? Because it's not clear in uh, just on the face of it, right? Because he just says, and the rich. In verse 9, he says, let the lowly brother. So he doesn't say, and the rich brother. Uh, but... Greek construction is such, the, the Greek language is such, that he wouldn't necessarily have to repeat brother to, to mean that here. Uh, in other words, you can have parallel, and when you're talking about one thing, you can have the adjective on the, just the first thing and understand that it, it applies to the second as well. So it could be the, the lowly brother and the rich brother. We might be inclined to think about what happens to the rich person here, what James says happens to them, right? That they, um, in, in verse 10, that they, like a flower of the grass, will pass away. Or at the event, end of verse 11, the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. We might interpret that or understand that as being some kind of judgment action on, by God. And so we might think that he, uh, this rich that James is talking about is an unbeliever. Uh, and... Certainly, if we consider the context to the letter, uh, James is writing to likely to Christians who are poor and oppressed, and they're poor and oppressed by the rich. Uh, so maybe James is dealing with those here. However, when we look at that language of like pass away in the New Testament, it doesn't mean judgment. It doesn't indicate judgment. Um, it doesn't certainly indicate final judgment. So how do we interpret this? Well, I think we can disagree if we need to. Uh, my, my position would be that the rich is a Christian. 
So again, that parallelism that the lowly brother and the rich brother. And so he is putting these both up. Uh, part of that, too, is what we see uh, the rich man in his humiliation. Why would a rich unbeliever boast in humiliation? That seems like a strange thing to say. But a rich Christian does boast in his humiliation. Uh, so, and I think we'll, we'll unpack that. Uh, and it's not to say that the rich person can't be saved. Jesus says it's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. But with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So, are rich saved? Yes. Book of Acts, we see from time to time the rich come to Christ. God saves all kinds of people. So, let us presume then that this rich man is a Christian. And we'll undertake to see. What what does James say to the rich man? He says, boast in your humiliation. Boast in your humiliation. And again, um, this word for humiliation is the same uh, root word as the one he talked about in lowly. So again, we see this reversal. James says to the, to the low person to boast in his high position. And now he says to the person in a high position, boast in your lowliness, boast in your humiliation. Uh, we find James here talking about the humiliation of the exalted. What do the rich have to boast in? What does the rich Christian have to boast in? And again, as I've said before, this is probably you. So what do you have to boast in? Not the riches. Right, we already saw that in the book of Jeremiah. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Why not? Again, when we think about riches, Matthew six nineteen. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. What's the problem with earthly treasures? They fade. They break down. It doesn't matter how nice it is. It tarnishes. And if it doesn't tarnish by natural action, right, uh, Rust and moths. Well, someone will come along at some point and try and steal it. That's what earthly treasures get you. And how often do we fear about our earthly treasures being stolen? And how how much do we do to mitigate that possibility? And if you don't mitigate, right, do you lock your door? You're trying to mitigate it, right? Why do we do that? Earthly treasures fade. Again and again we see that. Uh, not only that, we know that the end is passing away. First John 2, 15-17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life are not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And when uh, John there talks about the pride of life, it's likely he's talking about material possessions. So again and again we see throughout the scriptures, earthly treasures fade, material possessions are passing away, they're temporary 
They're transitory. And isn't that what we see here in our passage, right? Even the rich person, like a flower of the the flower of the grass, he will pass away. The rich person will pass away. The world is passing away. And how vain is it that we boast in treasures of this earth? They are more fleeting than we can even realize. James gives us a clear picture of this vanity, right? Look at verse 11. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Think about this. In the midst of a desert, grass may grow real quick in the night, but as soon as the the hottest part of the day hits it, what happens? It, It withers. Flowers. How long do flowers last? And even in that, right, when we cut them, put them in a vase, we try all sorts of things, little packets to put in and preservatives to try and keep them longer. But what happens to those flowers? They wither. They die. They're already dead. We're just propping propping up something that's dead, right? And that's what we're doing with riches. Riches are not the ultimate end of our lives. And understand that this world tells us that they are. Commercials on TV, on YouTube, school counselors, friends and family will tell us that the most important thing we do with our life is go to get a job, get a high paying job. Get something that will really make you bank. And maybe if you do well enough, you can retire early and then you can just kind of lay back and do whatever you want. Productivity articles, right? How, how, or, or even if you ever look at like entrepreneur articles, how, how can you make residual income? How can you make, how can you use the maximum amount of your time in a day in order to make it make more money how often is our culture extolling the the glories of riches but make, make no mistake that worldliness is passing away and what do riches really represent a trial and temptation. Do you consider that? Do you consider that wealth is a trial and a temptation? Paul says to his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 11, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. The seeking of wealth is a running headlong into destruction. And so Paul says, flee these things. Pursue holiness. Run after holiness. 
Riches pass away, and so too do those who cling tightly to them. The priorities of this world are quickly passing away, and so we would do well to heed this warning. We need to heed this admonition from the Scripture. We need to do well because in our culture of excess, every message that we hear is to the contrary of what the Scripture says. Riches fade. And I don't care how rich you are, you will fade away, you will fall away in the midst of your pursuit. Right? The rich man will fade away in the midst of their pursuit. The rich man dies in the midst of his pursuit. And the whole of his earthly kingdom will be brought to naught. Again, let us heed the wisdom of Solomon. Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 12. Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 12. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase... They increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. For all your wealth, do you sleep well at night? The preacher says, be satisfied in the work that one has to do and not in the enlarging and full stomachs of the rich. Riches are passing away. Say that again and again and again. Riches are passing away. The treasures of this earth are passing away. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Riches are vanity. And you who are young here, You who are young need to set firmly in your minds now that the goal of your life, listen, the goal of your life is not the desire to be wealthy and have it all and retire early. The goal of your life should be to give God the glory due His name. And you could do that wealthy or poor it's humiliating and listen so so the boast of the rich person is not in his wealth but it's in his humiliation it's in the humbleness of his confession because here's the reality it's humiliating for the rich person to say he is not sufficient it's humiliating to say despite all this effort i put in to obtaining and amassing these earthly treasures they are meaningless They are meaningless because they do nothing for my eternal soul. So I confess Christ. It is humiliating to say that in all this effort, I'm still found lacking. It is humiliating to confess your sins. It takes humility to call out to Christ for help. And yet, what awaits the one who does? Douglas Moo, in commenting on this passage, summarizes it well, that the point of this passage is that Christians must always evaluate themselves by spiritual, not material, standards. 
It's easy to judge each other by the status symbols of our age. And it's even easy even as Christians to think in the context of material goods. It's easy within the church, as I said earlier, to compare ourselves to outward metrics that are temporary and transitory. But God cares little about our wealth or status symbols. He cares little about the crowds of people that may show up to a service. He cares little about the metrics of success established by this world. Why? If God cared about wealth, guess what? He owns the cattle on a thousand hill. Right? All of this is his. And if he needed more, what could he do? Speak. And like that, if he said, I want a mountain of gold, I want Mount Everest to be nothing but solid gold through and through, God could say it and it would be his. What about the crowds of people? Well, he doesn't want lip service. He doesn't want people to just come and and outwardly profess but not inwardly believe. Crowds of people that show up to satisfy themselves mean nothing to him. Because here's the reality. He doesn't need worship. So I'm going to let you think about that statement just for a moment there. And I didn't misspeak. He doesn't need worship. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need you to worship him. He is not enlarged or diminished by whether or not you worship him or not. Do you, do you understand that? That God is sufficient in and of himself. He doesn't need you. Notice what I didn't say, though. He does want you. He does want worship. And it is our duty, it is incumbent upon us to worship God. That's what he calls us to. That's what he's created us for. To worship and enjoy him forever. But he doesn't need it. So don't think you're adding to him when you gather together to worship him. Rich or poor doesn't matter. Your heart before God does. And that is the issue. What is your heart like? I don't mean the status of the beating muscle in your chest. I mean, who are you really? What is the state of your soul? James is writing to churches that he might encourage, exhort, and admonish them to check the state of their soul. He writes that they may be ready to stand the trial, whether they're rich or they're poor. And here today we have in this passage a warning about the passing of riches. The rich man will die in the midst of his grasping after the wind of riches. The boast for the poor man is not in how wealthy he is, it is in his salvation. And the same is true for the rich man. His boast is not in himself, it is not in what he has attained, it is in what Christ has done. His boast is in the work of God alone. So how should you view riches? Passing away, temporary, as a tool by which you can bring glory to God. Understand that riches are a tool. Give God the glory through his name in the use of your wealth. Give much to God to the furthering of his kingdom work. Give out of the generosity of your heart to kingdom causes. Humble yourself in serving others. And if you're poor, if you have but two pennies to your name, boast in God. 
Give God the glory due His name. Worship Him. Rejoice in the riches of His grace. Because if you are in Christ, your only boast is in Him. You were dead. You were dead until He gave you life. What do you have that He did not give to you? As Paul admonishes the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, For he, for who sees anything different in you, what do you have that you did not receive? And then if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You didn't earn salvation. And here's the other reality. You didn't even earn the wealth that you have. The treasures of this earth that you do have come from God's hand. All that you have is God's. And the question for you, believer, is how are you stewarding it for his glory? And listen, this is an uncomfortable thing to think about. Uh, It's uncomfortable because it interrupts the natural feelings of our flesh. It's much more comfortable for us to think about how can I build bigger barns to hold more of my things than it is to how can I divest myself of my wealth for the glory of God and for his kingdom. It's much more comfortable to build our kingdom than God's. And here's the reality too. Satan does not harass the one building his own kingdom. But we must consider all the word of God. And as this is the word of God, how do we apply it to ourselves? How will you be faithful, brother or sister in Christ? Some of you, though, will want to ignore the scripture altogether. You see no problem in seeking after the riches of treasures of this earth. You love to boast in yourself. You boast in your wealth. You boast in your riches. You boast in your wins. You boast you boast in the glories that you have attained. But understand that the one who boasts in themselves finds themselves in a very precarious situation. For you who boast is yourself, God will quickly put you to an end. All who boast in themselves will find themselves lacking on the day of the Lord. When God calls you to account, you will be found wanting. Or as God gave that message a long time ago, mene mene tekel parson. You have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. What is the end of such a person? What is the end of the person who boasts in their own obtained glory? The second death, the lake of fire, eternal judgment is yours, you who boast in yourself. But if you repent of your sin, if you turn from your pride, if you humiliate yourself and go to God in your need, he will save you. You will find salvation for your soul. You will find a gracious God ready to forgive and ready to pour out the riches of his grace. Christ Jesus died to save sinners. This is a trustworthy statement. The Son of God came, died, was buried, rose victorious from the grave, that you may be freed from your slavery to sin and Satan. He has come to set the captives free. He has come that you may have life and life abundant. So believe in Christ Jesus. Trust in Him. Repent, turning from your sins, and seek God. Riches are passing away, but the work of Christ lasts for eternity. Look unto the work of Christ. 
and then you will have something worthy to boast about. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, God of all glory and grace, we thank you for your grace unto us. Father, we thank you that you have saved us, those of us who believe, who put our trust in you. And in our salvation, we are promised such glory, such riches, an inheritance uh, with Christ that we cannot even fathom or imagine, although your word uh, points them out. And Father, we confess that we are too quickly allured by the things of this earth. We are too quickly to too quick to turn to earthly treasures. We are too quick to enlarge, enlarge our own estate for the purpose of our own glory, of our own boast, even though such is temporary, transitory, and passing away. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for boasting this week in anything but the work of Christ. And, oh, Lord God, help us to understand that more and more, that, that Christ Jesus is our very life. And, Father, we pray for those who boast in themselves. We pray for those who glory in the riches of this earth. Lord God, we pray that you would have mercy on them and that you would open their eyes to see the truth. God, send your Holy Spirit to regenerate them that they might see the truth and confess it that they might humble themselves before you and believe in Christ and be saved. Oh, Father, do that work which you alone can do, we pray, in us and in them and in the community around us. And so we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.